I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. When I first looked at these texts, I was tempted to use the Jeremiah text, but it actually suggests that perhaps my role of preaching uh, in anticipation of this passage has become obsolete. At the end it says, No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. It would already be internalized. So I'm going to preach on the gospel text. Our New Testament passages demonstrate to us that the spectacular gets good press, but seldom leads to personal and relational growth. At best, it creates heroes and entertains us with false hopes or big egos. And so let's look at the context briefly of this very familiar passage. It's almost Passover. Political and community liberation from slavery is being celebrated. Political and racial liberation from Roman domination is being anticipated. And son of man is the phrase, is the legend that anticipates this. Son of man as an idea had a long history in Jewish thought. Its origins are in Daniel 7.13, where a son of man would arise to change humanity. And in Daniel's day, Israel had been under the thumb. Uh, First the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Medes, and then the Persians. Regimes that were so cruel and savage that they were often described in animalistic terms. The lion with eagle's wings was Assyria, the bear with three ribs between its teeth, the leopard with four wings and four heads, and the terrible beast with iron teeth and ten horns. And we don't have to look far in our world today to see this animalistic form of power. And Daniel's vision was that a new power would enter this animalistic forum. And that power would be gentle, humane, and gracious. But Israel's interpretation was that this leader would be gentle, humane, and gracious to them, but powerfully subject all other nations to Israel's control. And so we have the phrase, the Lion of Judah. And Jesus' message breaks down the distinctions, all of them, of us and them. The gentle, humane, gracious kingdom of God is for all people, even all of creation. And perhaps that is the significance of the Greeks wanting to see Jesus. It's a chance for the disciples to realize that their vision of the Son of Man is limited by their entrenched tradition of a conquering king. And Jesus is suggesting in this passage that the Son of Man is being lived out by him in its true form. He embodies the Son of Man idea, the incarnate example of what it means to be truly human for all humanity and for all creation. This passage is John's substitute for the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane that we see in the other Gospels. And in many ways, John's gospel was written to bring the gospel to the Greeks. The Greeks were very different than the Israelites. 
They were wandering truth seekers and lovers of new possibilities. They had a high level of curiosity rather than being rather at times dogmatically tied to their traditions. They were seekers of truth. And they saw that truth as a possibility no matter where it dwelt rather than just in their own tradition. Interestingly, verse 16 preceding our text tells us that the disciples didn't get it. Their tradition gave them these preconceived ideas of what the Son of Man would do and be. And I can imagine these Greeks coming up to Philip, a Greek name, by the way. So they felt comfortable approaching him. Who is this guy? Is he a buddy of yours? He seems to not be the stereotypical Israelite. No, he isn't, they said. We've been following him for years. Well, what's he like? Well, Philip says to Andrew, how do we describe him? I don't know. He's intriguing, sometimes confusing. One minute it feels like we get him, and the next minute we don't have a clue what he's talking about. Ah, say the Greeks. Interesting. We're curious about people like that. Do you think we could see him? And Andrew and Philip say, we'll see what we can do. And they go to Jesus and they say, these Greeks would like to see you. Now Jesus seems to answer a totally different question that they haven't even overtly asked. It doesn't make sense until you understand what the word see here means. There are three words in the Greek for see. One of them is blepo, see, to, it's the opposite of blindness. I just see you. That's not the word here. The word here is ido. It's the opposite of obtuse, of not getting it, of not understanding. They don't want to just meet Jesus. They want to comprehend him. They want to understand what makes him tick. This is a place where seeing is believing and seeking to understand. And so they don't want to just meet Jesus. And so I think Jesus is saying, they want to understand me? Do you guys actually understand me? Here's who I am. I'm not about miracles. I'm not about political power. I'm not even about raising people from the dead or driving out the money changers. I'm not about being spectacular. I am about the way of the cross. And in responding to their question, Jesus doesn't talk about Greeks or conquest or raising people from the dead or even resurrection. He starts to talk about death, his death. I didn't come to be spectacular. I came to model living and dying well. And here is what glorification or being spectacular looks like to me. It's dying well that defines my glorification. You're attracted to a God who performs spectacular miracles, but I'm the God who suffers, who weeps, the God who dies. Is that who you want to see, to understand, to know? This is what it means to be the Son of Man. And now there is a paradox that our scripture confronts us with. How do you die well? We tend to not want to talk about it. We want to get the most out of life and deny or avoid death as long as possible. 
and Jesus died to live, and this was life-giving somehow for him and the life that he gave for others. And somehow, especially at Easter, we're confronted by this. This death saves us. And since the death and resurrection are such central tenets of Christian faith, shouldn't we grapple a bit with how that works exactly? Barbara Brown Taylor grapples with it well in sharing her struggles with what we really mean when we say that Jesus died for our sins. Yes, I believe it, she says, but how did that work exactly? Were they all piled up there at the foot of the cross? Sins past, sins to come, and when he breathed his last, they simply vanished? Or was it more like a ledger in the hands of an angry God, with every person's name followed by a long list of unpaid debts? And every time God wrote down one, God said, someone's going to have to pay hell for this. And then one day Jesus says, I will. I'll pay the whole thing. And that was that. God closed the book, threw it in the trash. Only, how did something that happened 2,000 years ago affect what I might do today or tomorrow? Does Jesus go on dying for my sins? And what kind of a God would require that? Sorry, folks, but do you believe in a God who would kill his own son to make a point? Maybe resurrection isn't the end game here. It's almost as if Jesus takes it for granted. It's assumed as a given. The end game is dying well. Isn't that where our struggle too lies? Doesn't make dying easier. And because this is such a paradox, Jesus can only use or tends to use metaphors and images to communicate this bigger than life message. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, to do what he came to do. And the good news is, you're invited to join me in this glorification. What does joining me look like? He says, we are all like grains of wheat that only produce significant fruit if we first die. Love your life, you'll lose it. Hate your life, you'll keep it. And in some ways, Jesus demonstrates the ironic, redemptive power of suffering. His suffering identifies with our suffering. Our suffering is now linked to his. Now, this is no easier to hear now than it was then. We want a Savior that prevents us from suffering, not one that invites us into suffering. And the message he gives us is that no matter how hard we try to avoid pain, prevent conflict and change, we will likely find out that in so doing, we have actually avoided life as well. I've told the story of C.S. Lewis a number of times. Briefly, C.S. Lewis's mother dies when he's eight years old, and he makes a conscious decision to not let himself love anything that much again, because to lose it is just too hard. And so he immerses himself in academic life. And then in midlife, he meets Joy Grisham. And slowly and tentatively, he falls in love and allows himself to both give and receive love again. But a year after they're married, she contracts cancer, and within a year, she dies. 
And in his morning, he makes this statement. The young boy chose safety. The old man chooses suffering. Not actually chosen, but more recognized and acknowledged that if you love, you open the doorway to the possibility of suffering. <clears throat> Leonard Cohen, in one of his songs, says, he died to make things holy. We die to make things cheap. Jesus somehow calls us to hate our lives to save them and suggests if we love our lives, we will lose them. What I think he means is that if we are only pursuing only our own comfort, our own safety, our own superiority, we actually end up belittering our lives. To hate life means to, go, to let go of these bad certainties and pursue God, the pathway of life and abundance. It's a choice. And Jesus had two choices, especially right at this time. Perhaps he's saying so do we. We could build a cocoon of safety and close ourselves off to suffering. Stop walking around <coughs> amongst the crowds and go underground. He could tone down his message. Just say things nicely. He could be a little more careful whom he hangs out with, whom he eats with, and condemn the marginalized instead of the religious and political leaders. That sounds more like loving your life to save it. But instead he chose a life of self-emptying, self-giving, of loving which always contains the possibility of suffering. But I want to be clear here. Suffering is not the goal. It's the byproduct of his goal. It was a consequence of his love and his lifestyle of walking around speaking confrontationally about people in places where he saw a lack of love, justice, compassion, and mercy. Barbara Brown Taylor again says, he was crossing lines of power you do not cross without getting electrocuted. And his choice was whether to cross those lines or not. He did have a choice. And this choice is the real story. Now much of the suffering in the world has nothing to do with the gospel. Famine, abuse, war, genocide, incest, floods are not redemptive. The people who suffer these things don't have a choice, and no one should have to endure them. But Christ chose values that were bigger than his life. Love, justice, mercy, truth, goodness, beauty. And he spoke into those places where power corrupted these values. That's why he suffered. He suffered because he confronted this corruption. And this is where he invites us to join him. This is the way of the cross. Grain can't grow unless the seed dies. To experience love, one must do more than love their life. To let love grow, you have to plant the seeds of love. And this could be a very different message than most of us were taught, that somehow Jesus paid the debt of our sin. In John, we are called to die to a safe and hidden life. We are called to a radical life of love, a life where this ma message matters so much that he was willing to lose his life and show people how crucial this message was rather than just talk about it. He was submissive to die. He was willing to die to promote and support this community of life. He told us that suffering is not to be avoided at all costs. 
but he also told us that suffering does not mean that God is mad at you. In fact, when the purpose behind suffering is greater than you, it always leads to redemption, and this is Christ's message. All Saints, along with the Christian community in Vernon, is this local field of wheat, and we owe our lives and these values to him. If he had not died, we would not be here. He calls us to choose life, a life that is abundant, even if the byproduct sometimes is suffering. This is the Lenten message. This is our Lenten journey.